Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one thing they teach you to do when you talk to an audience is not to have a, a talk before the talk, but I'm going to have that today because uh, I, I got good grades. I do say what they want me to say on the test, but then I just do whatever I want. How many of you do that? Anybody? Um, the, uh, this is a sermon I haven't quite known how to start. We've been in a series I started last week. It's called Failing Faith. Um, and it's kind of come out of uh, just, you know, recent things that have gone on in our culture and things that are going on locally. And there's times in our lives where life is hard. Life is painful. There's suffering in life. And it's not in the brochure, right? When you, when you first start this endeavor, you don't get that. In, it must be in the fine print on the back page, hidden. Uh, it's in the lawyer speak or something somewhere. And none of us read that. And we're often shocked and surprised when pain and suffering hits us, and yet it does. And if we're Christians, if we've spent any amount of time in church world, uh, we tend to hear about the triumphant Christian life. In fact, there's a, a little flyer I'm not hitting, I'm not, I'm not making fun of this, I'm not criticizing it, but there's a flyer on the back wall that says abundance, and it's for a women's conference that's coming up. And the conference sells better, right? Because we do marketing studies and people figure out what people want to come to and what they want to hear. If you call the retreat abundance rather than sparing or, you know, yeah, you barely have enough, you know. If they call it abundance, like, oh, yeah, I want to go. I want to learn about the abundant Christian life because Jesus talked about the abundant Christian life. I don't want to learn about the barely getting by, hanging on Christian life. And yet, many times when bad things happen to good people, when bad things happen to us, we're shocked, we're confused, and we think, what's wrong? Why is this happening to me? Am I a failure in my faith? Is my faith failing? Or is God failing? Am I the fraud? Is my faith the fraud? Or is God the fraud? And when you couch it that way, those are two really bad, both losing choices, right? Because either your faith is the fraud or God's the fraud. And I don't like either of those choices. And that causes me to go back to the Bible and go, maybe there's more choices. Maybe we don't understand this very well. And I must confess, I often struggle uh, with feeling uh, like I'm a fraud sometimes. I'm sure you feel that way sometimes too. And there's other times I I struggle with, is this God thing a fraud? (laughs) And these are both common experiences, common feelings, especially in the midst of pain and suffering. So today, I want to talk about uh, a story in the Old Testament. Shocking, I know, I like the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, You might look at the table of contents if you brought your Bible to find it. It's right before 2 Kings, if that helps you any. Um, (laughs) uh, 
First Kings 19, I'll give you a moment to find it, but I want to start, I've wrestled with how to start this, so I want to ask this question and then I want to tell you a story, okay? So here we go, let's see how this works. I've, I've never done this before, this sermon. I did one last week, but I haven't done this one before. Was Jesus a failure? Was Jesus a failure? Now, we're in church, right? So the answer is no. But if we weren't in church, if we were evaluating him by the American dream, what what we believe to be a success, was Jesus a failure? You see, if you evaluate Jesus' life on the basis of how most Americans base their life and their success, then you absolutely have to say that Jesus was a failure. There's no other way to think about his life. He died young, 30, 33 years old. He died as a criminal. He was executed by the government, by the state. Do you think of folks who are executed by the state as successes? That cross was their day and age's electric chair, their guillotine, their lethal injection. Do you think of anybody that dies in those means other than a Christian martyr as a success? Do you think of anybody that dies before they really got the enterprise off the ground going? Before they made their first 100,000, before they made their first million. I mean, with a global, worldwide endeavor like what Jesus was trying to establish. Was he success? If you were to compare Jesus and Joel Osteen, who's more successful? Whose life would you rather have? Maybe that'd be another way to think about it. Whose life would you, who would you like to trade places with? Just from, you know, I mean, I know throughout the son of God part, throughout the can't do miracle piece, all that stuff. Just knowing some rough details of their lives. Whose would you rather have? Now, don't kid yourself. I know you're at church and you're thinking, oh, well, I totally picked Jesus. Don't kid yourself because daily This choice is in front of us. Daily, this choice is in front of us. Whose life do we want? And nearly every time without question, we pick Joel Osteen's life. How do I know? Because before I was a pastor, I was a person. Right? And you know that's why it's funny, right? Because, well, aren't you still a person? Some of you catch that. I get it. You see, Jesus says this, if any of you want to be my disciple, he must deny himself, herself, pick up his cross and follow me. How did we get from that to just look in the mirror and say to yourself, I'm more handsome than I was the day before. I'm a bigger success today than I was the day before. Excuse me? Just imagine Jesus waking up in the morning. I'm more handsome. I mean, it could really be true for him. I'm more handsome today than I was the day before because he can do like laser surgery on himself, right? Because he's God in the flesh. 
But every single day, we're making the choice and we're picking the life of American Christianity. How do I know? Look who we vote for in politics. Look at what we want above all things. We want safety. We want security. We want comfort. We want low taxes. We want, we want, we want. Jesus has the nerve to say, if anybody would be my disciple, they must pick up their cross and follow me. There's this story in the Old Testament. First Kings. One of my favorite people in the Bible. But he'd scare me to death to meet the guy. His name's Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet in ancient Israel. He was a prophet during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel. And he was a prophet to the nation of Israel in the north. And at this time, Israel, the reason that the nation is divided is because Solomon had followed God with a divided heart. And so uh, the, the consequences of Solomon's divided heart was that God divided the kingdom. He divided the kingdom, not during Solomon's lifetime. It was a blessing to Solomon that God spared him to see this, but his sons. And the reason that He's divided the kingdom further is because the people's hearts have gone after other gods, little g. They're following other gods. In fact, you run into these gods all the time. The names are Asherah and Baal, or Baal, depending on, on if you like right pronunciation, right? Asherah and Baal. And Asherah and Baal, and they're just two of a a pantheon of gods that you can kind of pick and choose. And and Baal and Asherah are gods of the people that used to live there, the Canaanites. And they start to follow these gods. There's a couple reasons why they start to follow these gods. One is these gods are more fun than Yahweh. And how do I know that? Because uh, how you worship them is very carnal, it's very base, it, it, it appeals to our very base instincts. Worship of them is very sexual, it's very earthy. And these gods lead the Israelites astray. And at this time when Elijah is a prophet in Israel, the king, his name is Ahab, and he's married to a queen that I'm sure you've heard of, Queen Jezebel. Queen Jezebel is a foreigner. The king has married her in an effort to make an alliance with a foreign power. And she is causing King Ahab to go after other gods like no other king in Israel has done. And Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and Asherah to a showdown. He challenges him to a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. If you've ever been in Sunday school and church, I'm sure you've heard the story. That's where I first heard the story. And Elijah, he's on the top of Mount Carmel, and he says to these prophets of Baal, 450 of them against one. You thought you had bad odds, right? 450 to one. That's worse than the Broncos playing the Patriots last Sunday, right? 
At least it was 11 on 11 most of the time, right? One on 450. And he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to build two altars. You 450, you guys are going to build an altar to Baal. You're going to get this ox and you're going to sacrifice it to Baal. But you're going to put the wood on top or on the, on, underneath uh, the, the meat. You're going to put the meat on top. And then you're going to call on Baal to light the fire. Me? I'm going to rebuild because there was an altar to Yahweh at the top of this mountain that was in disrepair. It had 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, I'm going to build this altar. And he reconfigures that altar and he puts wood on top of the altar and he takes his ox and he slaughters it. He says, God's going to light this fire. Now we're going to spend some time, we're going to call on our gods, and whoever lights the fire is God. You go first. (laughs) 450 prophets of Baal. They start to call on Baal. They start to do their Baal worship stuff. The text tells us they start to cut themselves. They start to bleed themselves in an effort to get the gods to pay attention to them, to understand that this is a very important task and you need to pay attention to us. They start to slice themselves. They start to to sweat and dance and cry out and sing their songs and chants. And Elijah just sits over here and he he starts to taunt them like any good cornerback in the NFL. You know, maybe, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he took the day off. My favorite one. Maybe he's in the bathroom. It's in there. It's in the Bible. It's a Hebrew euphemism. It says maybe he can't see his feet, which maybe he was in the bathroom. And they go until noon, a little after noon, and then and Elijah at this point's hungry. He's a little bored. It's not working. The people, uh, by the way, there's thousands of Israelites that have made their way to Mount Carmel to watch the showdown. And Elijah says, all right, your turn's over. He goes over to his altar, and he's not done with the altar and the building of the altar. He digs a trench around the altar. And then he tells some young men to fetch water here on the top of a mountain. And he asks them to go get some water. (laughs) Took a while, probably. They go. They get some water. They pour bucket after bucket after bucket after bucket of water until this trench is overflowing with water. Till the, 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 the altar is drenched. The stones are soaked. The meat is moist. The wood, <laughs> you can't, you're not getting this lit. You ever tried to start wet wood? Then Elijah does something. He gets down on his knees and he just looks to the heavens and he says, Oh God, you're the God of Israel. Show these people that you are the one true God. The text says that lightning, that fire fell from heaven. And I love how it's 
put, it says it lapped up all of the water. It destroyed, it, it disintegrated, it lapped up the rocks. Nothing was left but a crater in the ground at the top of the mount, mountain of Carmel. And at that moment, Elijah says, hey, what does the Bible say about false prophets, about those who worship false gods? Kill them. And so the people of Israel rise up and they say, Yahweh is God. And they put to death the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah. (laughs) Bloody afternoon. There's great rejoicing and the people seem to be turning back to Yahweh. But Elijah, Elijah flees for his life. Queen Jezebel's not going to take this sitting down. Ahab's not going to take this. They're king and queen after all. They still don't follow Yahweh. Yeah, neat trick. But we're not bending the knee. And Elijah runs and hides. Question, what would you do after calling down fire from heaven? (laughs) They didn't really talk about this when I was a kid. I didn't know these stories were right after one another when I was a kid in Sunday school. Uh, They just ended with a, yeah, so like, you know, God's God and just, we don't know what the application is because none of us can call down fire from heaven, but he's really awesome. So just say no to Baal and follow God. It's like, yeah. And then the next story, Elijah's running and hiding in a cave and they don't ever tell you that part. They don't tell you that that's what happened next in Elijah's life. And you're like, and you know why they don't tell you that when you're a kid? Because you go, what? Just like, you know, many of us are doing now. What? Like he just totally, they were killed. The people, what do you mean? He runs and he hides in a cave. He's actually pleading with God. He's suicidal. He actually asked God, kill me now. So much for a victorious Israelite life. Let's read what this says. First Kings 8, 19, 1 through 8, 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. <laughs> Elijah was afraid. How do you feel about Elijah? Can you relate? I mean, on one hand, we can relate because we know what fear is like. On the other hand, we can't relate because we've never called down fire from heaven. Why is he afraid? He just saw an amazing miracle of God and he's afraid. And he ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Judah. So he went to a different country. To flee the king. He left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush. Broom bush. Sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough Lord he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. (laughs) All at once an angel touched him and said get up and eat. 
He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. That was some really good food until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, this is so interesting because there's times in our lives that the circumstances tempt us to give up. And I love that the Holy Spirit said, print it, this is good Bible. Because there's times in our lives that stuff happens, even after an amazing conference about abundance in Colorado Springs, and we come home and we're like, I barely got enough. And the circumstances in our lives make us doubt God, make us feel like our faith's a fraud, make us wonder, anybody got my back? And don't kid yourself, if it could happen to Elijah, who just called down fire from heaven, it can happen to us. It can happen to any of us. These circumstances in his life are making him want to quit. Reminds me of a a book that I read years ago in seminary. It became a movie here over the last year or so. It's called Silence. It was about two missionaries, Jesuit priests actually, and they traveled to Japan to find their mentor who they had heard perhaps had apostatized. He'd, he'd wandered from the faith. <laughs> Japan, the government there, the emperor, was in the process of, of seeking to, to rid the island nation of Christianity. As these two Jesuit priests go and they're seeking to minister to the Japanese and they're trying to find their mentor and they face all these hardships and all this pain and struggling to get there. One of the priests dies. One of the crux of the entire movie, of the entire book, is when this priest, Rodriguez, the main character, he just turns to God and he says, Lord, why are you silent? Why are you silent? Here's a man who's risking his life to share the gospel with people in Japan. And he's running for his life left and right. He's suffering. He's being beaten. He's being persecuted. And all he finds from God is silence. You've been there? Have you ever experienced silence from God? Now, I don't know what to do with Elijah because he's actually visited by an angel twice. And the guy's still bummed out. I mean, he doesn't, he's even got angels showing up eating. I mean, they're baking him bread. I've never had an angel bake me bread, though Marnie is quite the angel. She's also told me not to eat bread. (laughs) So that's why it's hard for me to see her angelically in this text. An angel shows up, bakes some bread for Elijah. Elijah eats it. It's such good bread. He wanders for 40 more days and 40 nights. But many of us, we don't have an angelic visitation. We don't have anybody baking us bread. We just have what Rodriguez experienced, silence. 
That's where many of us find ourselves. In pain and in suffering. Let's visit Elijah again. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) I'm like, are you reading this with me? Have, Have you been watching this movie, God? Like, the king and queen have vowed that I would be dead by the next day. Now it's 40-some-odd days later, still not dead. Know why I'm not dead, God? Because I ran to the wilderness. Why am I here, God? Because I ran for my life. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. His argument with God is totally different than mine would have been. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. What do you think God's going to be like when he passes by? You see, the writer's setting you up here. Right? The writer is setting you up. I mean, if you know your Old Testament, you know that he led the children of Israel in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. You know that in the temple, the presence of God filled the temple. The glory of the Lord was so overwhelming, so overpowering that the priests could not enter the temple when they finished the temple building project and they, then they consecrated the temple. If you know your Old Testament, which these people would have known, you know that Samuel, one night, God said, Samuel, Samuel. And it says, the word of the Lord came and stood. How does a word stand? Samuel stood next to God. You know that Moses saw a burning bush. How is God going to appear? And I'm sure the ancient readers are like, oh my gosh, this is going to be good. This is going to be awesome. How's he going to show himself? See, I wanted to do that because you probably aren't anticipating. Because you know the story. But you should be anticipating It says, man, I lost my place. Where am I at? Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. Oh, that sounds like God. That's pretty cool. That's probably him. And shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Okay. It's going to be better than that. This is going to be awesome. I mean, just think of the CGI effects on this movie, right? I mean, this will put the Avengers, this will put Marvel, this will put DC Comics, this will put all this to shame. It's going to be awesome. He just tore mountains apart and he wasn't even in that. After the wind, there was an earthquake. <laughs> he already tore mountains apart. Now what is he doing? He's tearing the earth apart. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. What? After the earthquake came a fire. Yeah, like Moses' burning bush, only bigger and grander and better. (laughs) But the Lord was not in the fire. Do you feel set up here? Well, what's left? Water? And 
after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, it doesn't tell us directly, but Elijah's response and his going out to hear from God seems God showed up in a whisper. Let's be super honest. That's not how we want him to show up in our lives. When we're in the midst of tragedy and pain and suffering, we don't want a whispering God. You can do it. Keep going. It's going to be okay. No. We want a God who will move heaven and earth to fix it. Right? Especially when you have our theology that says he can. Our theology says he can. Our theology says he can raise the dead. Our theology says he can fix the body. Our theology says that he can give me a million dollars. And we want that. If he's going to whisper to us, whisper, they're alive now. You're healed. It's fixed. That's the winning lotto number. That's what we want whispered to us. We don't want whispered to us, hey, Steve, what are you doing here? Excuse me? I am in a lot of pain. And I'm in a lot of suffering. And all you can whisper to me is, what are you doing here? Did I? Okay. Speak up. Maybe I heard this wrong. What are you doing here? Man, hopefully there's more to this story because I am super confused and I'm trying to preach this. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord. It's like, God, you didn't hear me the first time. I'm going to say it again. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Have we heard this before? I actually feel like, did I, am I reading the wrong part of the passage? The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. <laughs> okay, I've said it twice. Am I going to have to say it a third time, God? Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. (laughs) Okay, so the answer is, I'm done? It's over? Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. (laughs) That's God's answer. God gives him a couple of tasks. And it sounds like God's relieving him of his duties. 
Now, I don't believe God's relieving him of his duties because he failed his duties. I think he's done with his duties. Elijah was a success. But he wasn't an American success story. Just like Jesus wasn't an American success story. You see, a couple things we can take from this is one, God doesn't always operate in the realm of the spectacular. As many verses as you want to name and claim, to the contrary, God does not always operate in the spectacular. He does not move heaven and earth to fix your problems. He does not move heaven and earth to heal your cancer. He does not move heaven and earth to give you what you want and desire. And many times, I mean, let's get beyond the want and desire part. Let's get into the need area. Many times God will not act spectacularly to meet your needs. But, but the best news in this story is God met Elijah at his point of need. See, we miss that. We miss that because that's not what we want. We want our need met. We don't want to meet God. Man, that should be on a mug, right? We want our need met. We don't want to meet God. I mean, if we're super honest with ourselves, that's not what we want. If I'm super honest, that's often what I don't want. I want what I want. He also encourages him with a little bit of news. Yeah, you think you're alone, but there's 7,000 others. There's 7,000 others who have not bent the knee. There's 7,000 others who are loyal to Yahweh. You don't suffer alone. You see, one of the biggest lies that Satan has available to himself is to tell you, you're all alone. Nobody cares. Everybody's forgotten. And then he'll often twist it and say, and by the way, God's forgotten. God doesn't care. You're really all alone. And God did two things for Elijah. He met him at his point of need and he told him, you're not alone. So if I can do anything for you today, if you are in a place of grief or mourning or pain or suffering or sorrow, is to tell you this. God wants to meet you there. Why, Steve, you don't have any evidence for that. Oh, I have, I have a lot of evidence for that. It's the cross. Back to Jesus. Was he a success? You know, when I was a little kid, I learned that the answer to the question, why did Jesus come to the world? The answer was, so he could die for my sins. That was the answer to that question. That is the answer to that question. So that he could die for my sins and defeat the powers and be enthroned in glory as Lord over all. We didn't have that part too when I was a little kid. We just had, he came to die on the cross for my sins. So was Jesus a success? 
Yeah. Here's the bad news part of the message, though. He calls us to the same. He calls us to the same life. In a moment, I'm going to go, I'm going to get some swim trunks on. And uh, you all are just going to look at each other awkwardly for a moment, or maybe Beth will play some songs. Um, Why don't you guys head downstairs so we can start getting ready? You're not going to miss anything, because I'm going to talk about your baptism. (laughs) Baptism is a sign of an inward change. And baptism demonstrates, uh, Paul the Apostle says, that we have died with Christ and we're buried with him. That's the whole idea of being put down into the water. And then we rise in Christ to new life. We die in Christ. We rise in Christ. And this is a picture of the entire Christian life. It's not just a picture of the initiation. It's an ongoing dying and rising. Dying to Steve. Dying to self. Remember what Jesus said? If anybody wants to be my disciple, he must take up his Maserati. Oh, wait. Mercedes Benz. No. Cross. Man, I wish it was a Mercedes, don't you? But he says cross. Well, let me pray for us and Beth, if you'd Come and play, pray, play. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, that he came and he suffered, he died, that he was dead, that he was buried, but he rose again. And Lord, we know that that's what the life we're called to, and we look forward to that life. And Lord, we know that the only way to heaven is through our death. The only way to eternal life with you is through our death. And so death, because of what Jesus has pulled off, Easter, resurrection. It's just a doorway. It's just an entry point. And Father, help us to be hopeful, to not view our faith as a fraud or you as a fraud in the midst of our suffering, but to get a better perspective that you do amazing things for your kids. The most amazing of all is that you Give life out of death. Holy Spirit, impress these things on our hearts. Amen.